Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 285 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Big Sur UFO incident. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In recent years, there have been many reports of UFOs interfering with military operations, prompting the U.S. Congress to mandate new Defense Department studies of UFOs. But UFO interference with the military is nothing new, and for decades, there have been reports of UFOs taking an interest in our nuclear weapons in particular. In 1964, off the coast of Big Sur, California, a UFO reportedly shot down a missile designed to carry nuclear bombs. What happened in the Big Sur UFO incident? Were aliens responsible for it? And was the shootdown meant as a warning to humanity? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, first, let's clear something up. The artwork for today's episode says UFO nuke shootdown. But we need to be clear about what that means. There wasn't an actual nuclear weapon involved, was there? No, the story involves a UFO interfering with a test that was being done on a nuclear weapon system. But the missile in question wasn't carrying a live nuke. Uh, Since it was just a test of the system, it was carrying a dummy warhead. But the story does involve a UFO interfering with a test of part of America's nuclear arsenal. So where is our story set today? Off the coast of California, and specifically off the coast of Big Sur. The Big Sur region is part of California's central coastline between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Near the north of this area is the town of Monterey, which was founded by the Spanish, who made it the provincial capital of Alta California, or Upper California, which is the modern American state of California, in contrast to Baja California, or Lower California, which is part of Mexico. The Spaniards referred to the area south of Monterey as El Sur Grande, or the Big South. And eventually the word Grande got flipped into English as Big, so El Sur Grande became known as Big Sur, which would be Spanglish for Big South, meaning the region south of Monterey, California. It's a very mountainous region, and one of the characteristics of Big Sur is that the mountains go right up to the edge of the Pacific Ocean, and they can drop off very sharply, towering above a rocky stretch of ocean with nothing you could really call a beach below. We need to know about the Big Sur region for today's mystery, but we also need to know about a nearby military base. Which one is that? At the time of our story, it was called the Vandenberg Air Force Base, and today it's part of the U.S. Space Force, so it's known now as Vandenberg Space Force Base. Uh, President Trump pushed for the founding of the Space Force, which was created in 2019, and in 2021, Vandenberg was assigned to the Space Force. Today, it's used for a variety of military purposes, and it also provides launch facilities for the civilian agency NASA and the commercial firm SpaceX. But originally, it was part of the Air Force, and in the 1970s, it was designated as the West Coast Launching and Landing Point for the Space Shuttle, but they didn't really end up using it that way. 
However, they did use it for testing a lot of military launch systems, such as the Thor Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile, the Atlas Missile, the Titan Missile, and other ICBMs. That's a term not everyone may know. What is an ICBM? It stands for Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. Originally, a missile was any projectile weapon, whether you threw it, shot it, or otherwise propelled it towards the target. But today, a missile usually refers to a guided airborne weapon that you launch. Cruise missiles cruise along through the air using powered flight, like with a jet engine or rocket motor. But other missiles don't have powered flight for most of their journey. Instead, they're, when they're launched, their engine is firing, and then the, their engine or motor shuts off. And so they fly on most of their trajectory like a bullet, which is why they're called ballistic missiles. Just like in police investigations, the study of guns and bullets is called ballistics. So a ballistic missile flies like a bullet. It has power at the beginning of its flight, but not during most of it. And the angle you shoot it at, how fast it's moving, and gravity determines when it comes down. But ballistic missiles have different ranges. If they can go more than 3,400 miles, they're classified as having intercontinental range because you could use them to attack a target on another continent. Such missiles go very high in their flights, getting all the way up into space for part of their flight, so they can even assume suborbital trajectories. So an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, is a missile that flies like a bullet, can reach other countries, and can even get up into space. And they were testing a lot of them at Vandenberg Air Force Base. That takes us to the time of our story, which is set back in 1964. What was going on at the time? Well, this was during the Cold War, and tensions between the U.S. and Soviet Union were quite high. The premier of the Soviet Union at the time was Nikita Khrushchev, and while he was better than Stalin, he wasn't the most stable individual ever. The president of the United States in 1964 was Lyndon Johnson, and he was still a new president, having taken over after the assassination of his predecessor, John F. Kennedy. Kennedy had been killed the previous year in November of 1963, and we talked about the Kennedy assassination way back in episode 15, as well as more recently in episode 233, and we'll talk about it more in the future. There was some concern that the Soviets had been responsible for Kennedy's death, and so that contributed to the tensions at the time. There had been a big concern that his death might lead to nuclear war with the Soviets, which President Johnson was very concerned to avoid. Another event contributing to the tensions at the time was the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we discussed in Episode 213 and again in Episode 214, where President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev managed to avoid getting us into a nuclear war. There is also a secret Cuban Missile Crisis that we talked about in Episode 228 that the public didn't know about. But nuclear war was on everybody's mind because one of the things you can do with an ICBM is put one or more nuclear warheads on it. So when you attack your enemy on another continent, you can deliver a nuclear payload to him. And ICBMs would be one of the key weapons used in a nuclear war. So both the Soviets and the Americans were doing a lot of ICBM research. And Vandenberg Air Force Base was one of the places where that was happening. That sets the stage for our story. 
Now, let's talk about the characters in it. Who do we need to know about? The man at the center of our story has the ordinary name of Robert or Bob Jacobs. In 1964, he was a lieutenant in the Air Force. He was the officer in charge of photo-optical instrumentation in the 1369th Photographic Squadron at Vandenberg Air Force Base, California, from May 1963 to May 1966. After he retired, he earned a doctorate and became a journalism professor, and he's still with us today. He is the central witness to today's mystery. Now that we know the key player, let's talk about the mystery. How did it begin? There's an organization known as MUFON, which stands for the Mutual UFO Network, and I happen to be a member of MUFON, where I'm taking a course on how to be a UFO field investigator. In the January 1989 issue of their journal, Bob Jacobs published a story titled Deliberate Deception, the Big Sur UFO Film. In the article, he said, It began with a man named Kingston A. George. King George had the title of Operations Analyst for Headquarters, 1st Strategic Aerospace Division. This refers to a second individual who had the somewhat amazing name Kingston George. Uh, he was known to his friends as King George. He was born in 1931, so he was 33 years old at the time of today's mystery. In 1964, he was the operational analyst for headquarters, 1st Strategic Aerospace Division. Afterward, he helped develop the GPS system that we use today. He passed on to his reward in 2010 at the age of 79, and he'll come back into our story, so remember him. The engineers civilian and military, whose job it was to evaluate the instrumentation photography which we provided on every missile launch down the western test range, were unhappy, King George said. Shooting tracking footage from Vandenberg only provided a look up the tailpipe of the missile. What George said they wanted was a side look at all stages of powered flight. This side look was not possible from any place on the base. Because of the tortured California coastline, such a view was possible from one spot, Big Sur. Topographically, Big Sur is both north and west of Vandenberg. We reasoned that we might get the shot the engineers wanted if we could get high enough to provide both a line of sight to the base and to put us well above the offshore fog bank, which blankets the California shoreline much of the year. Because of the 124-mile distance from Vandenberg to Big Sur, the final things needed were a lens with a very long focal length, a recording device capable of enhancing the image, and a tracking system on which to mount them. According to George, such a device was built and ready to go. It was the Boston University Telescope, owned by the Air Force Eastern Test Range, or AFETR, at Patrick Air Force Base, Florida, and under the direction of Mr. Walter Manning in the Aerospace Sciences Division at AFETR. The optical segment of the device was a folded Gregorian telescope with a 24-inch diameter objective mirror and a 240-inch focal length. The lens apparatus was sealed from the air and insulated against heat and cold. A set of Barlow extenders could yield effective focal lengths of from 480 to 2400 inches. The normal focal length lens for a 35mm camera is about 2 inches. The light-sensing element of the instrument was an image orthocon, television tube. The I.O. could enhance the optical image, convert it to a series of electrical signals, 
and display on a kinescope where it was photographed with 35mm motion picture film. Because the I.O. had remarkable low noise, the gain could be cranked quite high to record very low light-level objects. Such a device could record sources of light emission or reflection, which were tens of times too weak for detection by other photographic methods. And since the telescope was from Boston University in your hometown of Boston, Dom, and I understand one of your uh, former alma maters, this telescope was known as the BU. The BU, as it was called, was ideal for the purpose. One of the primary goals of our mission, according to George, was to provide information on the minute events following propellant depletion at distances from 300 to 800 nautical miles. If we could find a level place accessible to the BU, not easy considering that the scope with its tracker was just a little smaller than a conventional moving van and had to be hauled by a heavy-duty cross-country type diesel truck, and see the missile through the haze well enough to lock in on it with the tracking mount, we still had one problem left. Engineering sequential photograph is of little use to the viewer without the addition of timing marks on this film. This time code, received from Wheeling, West Virginia, tagged each individual frame of film with a reference point in real time to the moment of engine ignition and launch. The coded pips of light were recorded on the soundtrack area of the film by an exciter lamp driven by the signal from Wheeling, West Virginia. On the base, timing signals were sent to the camera by hard lines from the blockhouse. Running a line to Big Sur with the necessary amplifiers would have been too costly, particularly for what was only a feasibility test. We had to try something else. The solution was really very simple. On June 10, 1964, I led a group of people to the area I had discovered earlier near Anderson Peak at an elevation of 3,400 feet on a Forest Service fire trail nine miles into the woods and uphill from Highway 1 in Big Sur. All of us agreed that the truck could certainly pull the BU up to this site with no trouble. Could we now get timing pips to it? We had with us that day a portable radio transceiver, which we used at Vandenberg to communicate from my office to the mobile vehicles and our tracking sites on base. At Vandenberg, I had Airman First Class Joseph Williams standing by. He had wired the output of one of the timing signals to an identical transceiver to the one I had. At my command, he activated the radio and transmitted flawless timing signals to us at Big Sur, just as we had in a test weeks earlier. All that was necessary with the BU would be to patch in our receiver to its timing signal input on the 35mm motion picture camera. Timing was no problem. There was happiness on the site, and my missile badge was assured that day. Here, Jacobs refers to an award that he reports being given by the Defense Department. He writes, I earned the missile badge for making a significant contribution to America's missile and space program, so the citation read, while I was officer in charge of photo-optical instrumentation in the 1369th Photographic Squadron at Vandenberg Air Force Base, California, from May 1963 to May 1966. My work in establishing a long-range tracking site at Big Sur, California, in large part is what convinced the Air Force to give me that cherished award. So Jacobs reports being given the prestigious missile badge as a result of finding the location in Big Sur from which they could film the missile launches from Vandenberg Air Force Base. Back to his story of what happened. 
on August 28, 1964, I led a convoy up the Pacific Coast Highway through Pismo Beach, past Hearst Castle at San Simeon, and into what would be history. On August 31, 1964, the BU telescope arrived on site with its truck and its caravan of people for a 30-day test period. Walt Manning was with it along with a crew of three operators and one supervisor. We were also joined by two people from Vandenberg, Chief Warrant Officer Guy M. Spooner from the operations section of the 1369th and Major Florence J. Mansman from 1st Stratad. Here, Jacobs introduces the third major figure in our story who had the amazing name Florence J. Mansman Jr. He was born in 1920, so he was 44 years old at the time of today's mystery. In 1964, he was a major in the Air Force, and he was assigned to the office of the Chief Scientist, 1st Strategic Aerospace Division. He also earned a doctorate, and he passed on to his reward in the year 2000 at the age of 85. And he'll come back into our story as well, so remember him too. With a celebratory air, the BU was set in place and made ready to perform. Mansman and Spooner went back to Vandenberg. The rest of us settled in to prepare for the first of what could be a total of 11 launches from the base during the 30-day test. Nine of these would be photographed through a major portion of powered flight by both the BU telescope and with the conventional cameras. One of these launches would inspire an official government cover-up and provoke an investigation and search for the filmed record, which goes on to this day. Here's what happened. To the best of my recollection, and based on sketchy records, the date of the event was most probably either September 2nd, 3rd, or 15th, 1964. The launch was of an Atlas missile. It was an Atlas F, as they recall strongly, but it may possibly have been an Atlas D. The flight was in support of the Nike Zeus objectives. Nike Zeus was one of the United States projects to develop an anti-missile missile. So the overall project they were working on was developing an anti-missile missile, that is, a way of defending against incoming nuclear attacks. The idea would be that if you see an ICBM coming toward you, you shoot it down before it arrives, and you save yourself from being the victim of a nuclear explosion in your immediate vicinity. This particular mission was part of a test of an enemy radar defeating system. The whole program, in hindsight, seems very primitive, possibly futile, and even a bit silly. Nearly a quarter of a century ago, in 1964, it was deadly serious business. At the Big Sur tracking site, we were ready to go as the countdown from Vandenberg progressed loud and clear on our radio. At the call of ignition, liftoff, all cameras rolled and scanned to the southeast for something to photograph. There it is, I shouted, as the Atlas leaped through the snow-white coastal fog blanket, and both tracking mounts homed in on the majestic bird in flight. The big Atlas could not have been more clean, clear, and majestic. We were go for the operation. The magnification of the BU was truly impressive. The exhaust nozzles and lower third of the Atlas missile literally filled the frame at this distance of over 100 nautical miles. With one tracking mount and one on elevation working completely manually, it was not easy to keep the image centered in the early stages of flight. As the nose cone package approached T plus 400 seconds, sufficient angle of view had been established that we were literally locked down with the whole in-flight package centered in the frame. 
No one on the site was watching the screen by this point. And this is an important point because nobody was watching the screen now, which meant that nobody was seeing what was being recorded. Our mission to provide the engineers with a side look at three stages of powered flight had been accomplished, and we were a very happy bunch, congratulating each other and letting the film run out in the 35mm motion picture camera focused on the kinescope. I took the cans of exposed film and headed down the coast of Vandenberg and our laboratory. Processing of the film would occur that night, and the results would be ready for viewing the next day. But the next day, Lieutenant Jacobs got a very unexpected phone call from Major Mansman. I was back at my desk enjoying the feeling of accomplishment from the Big Sur expedition when I was called by Major Mansman, who asked me to come right away to his office at the headquarters building. When I arrived, I found a movie projector set up in the office and a group of people waiting. Among these, I recall two men in plain gray suits who spoke little and watched me intently as the lights were dimmed and the film played on a bright screen. It was a surprise and a delight for me to be seeing the kinescope recording from Big Sur after all the months of planning and weeks of work. I was quite amazed and very pleased with the quality, especially at the distance involved, as we could make out quite plainly the separated nose cone, the radar experiment, and the W warhead all sailing along beautifully about 60 miles straight up from planet Earth and some 300 to 500 nautical miles downrange. As we neared the end of the camera run, Mansman said, Watch carefully now, Lieutenant Jacobs. At that point, the most remarkable vision of my life came on the screen. Another object flew into the frame from left to right. It approached the warhead package and maneuvered around it. That is, this thing flew a relatively polar orbit around our warhead package, which was itself heading toward the South Pacific at some 18,000 miles an hour. As the new object circumnavigated our hardware, it emitted four distinct bright flashes of light at approximately the four cardinal compass points of its orbit. These flashes were so intense that each strike caused the I.O. tube to boom or form a halo around the spot. Following this remarkable aerial display, the object departed the frame in the same direction from which it had come. The shape of the object was that of a classic flying saucer. In the middle of the top half of the object was a dome. From that dome, or just beneath it, seemed to issue a beam of light which caused the flashes described. Let's take a moment to process what Jacobs is saying. As they were tracking the missile in flight, another object came into the left of the frame and flew towards the missile. This happened shortly after nose cone separation when the missile was about 400 miles downrange, and the object looked like a classic flying saucer. The object flew around the dummy warhead in a vertical circular orbit clockwise, and it emitted four flashes of light toward the missile. These flashes of light looked like beams of light or possibly lightning. One was at each of the four compass points, or at the 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 9 o'clock divisions of a clock face. So it shot one flash at the missile when it was above it, one when it was level and to the right of the object, one when it was below the object, and one when it was level and to the left of the object. Then the object retreated and exited off the left frame of the film 
near where it had entered. Subsequently, the warhead malfunctioned and tumbled out of suborbit hundreds of miles short of its target. This unidentified flying thing had apparently shot down an American dummy atomic warhead. The lights came on and Major Mansman said, Lieutenant Jacobs, were you or any of your people fooling around up there at Big Sur? No, sir, I answered honestly. I was shaking with excitement. Then tell me, what the hell was that? I looked Major Mansman straight in the eye. It looks to me like we got a UFO, I said. There was a stifling silence among the men in gray civilian suits who continued to stare at me. Major Mansman gave them what I can only describe as a let-me-handle-this look. Well, he smiled cordially, let's just say it never happened. You are to say nothing about this footage to anyone. As far as you and I are concerned, this never took place. You understand? I looked at the men in the gray suits. They were not smiling. I felt hot and anxious. I was sweating badly. I think I just sat for a minute looking blankly at Major Mansman. I had just seen the most fantastic event of my life. It etched a path in my memory as deep as the one put there almost a year earlier when President John F. Kennedy had been shot to death in Dallas. I wanted more than anything to see it again, to study it under a magnifier, to analyze the pictures frame by frame. Major Mansman did smile nicely. I don't need to remind you of the seriousness of a security breach, do I, Lieutenant? he asked. No, sir, I replied. Good, he said, motioning for me to stand. I stood. He walked me to the door, speaking confidentially. What you just saw did not take place, he repeated. It never happened. I looked at him once more. Something flickered way back deep in his eyes as he again looked at the men in gray, then back to me. But if at some time in the future, Florence Mansman said finally, you are pressed by someone about this and you can't get out of answering, just tell them. Tell them it was flashes from laser tracking, okay? And with that, I was ushered out the door and into over a decade of silence on the subject. Never mind that in 1964 we did not have laser tracking, nor did we or any other power on Earth have spacecraft capable of flying circles around a suborbital capsule. I tried to sublimate the whole incident out of loyalty and respect for Florence Mansman, whom I liked a great deal. So that's Jacob's basic story. In September 1964, he and his crew shot footage of an Atlas missile being launched from Big Sur. But after focusing the camera on the missile in Big Sur where they were filming it from, they stopped watching the screen, so none of them saw what happened with it. Then the next day, Jacobs was summoned to Mansman's office where they reviewed the film there were also two civilians who were present, and the film appeared to show a UFO, a classic flying saucer, flying around the dummy warhead from the missile and firing beams of energy at it, which caused it to malfunction and fall hundreds of miles short of its target. After verifying that Jacobs and his men had not been fooling around with the camera to produce this footage, Mansman then ordered Jacobs to pretend it never happened and gave him a cover story saying, that the flashes of light on the film were part of a laser tracking system, even though the first laser had only been built four years earlier in 1960, and we didn't have any laser tracking facilities at the time. 
After this, Jacobs kept the story to himself for more than a decade. But then, when he did break his silence, the incident got national attention, and it's come to have a prominent place in UFO lore. And before we get to our theories and faith and reason perspectives, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Austin L., Samuel E., Edward R., Derek M., and Steve H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting FitCatholics.com. So, Jimmy, what theories are there about Robert Jacobs' experience? What possibilities do we need to look at? There are several that need to be considered. First, could this all be a hoax? Could Jacobs just be lying about all this? Second, could this be a case of misidentification, where Jacobs saw something on the film but didn't realize what it really was? Third, could this be disinformation? Could Jacobs be lying about the event happening for some kind of military or governmental purpose? Fourth, could Jacobs have captured footage of a secret military experiment? Fifth, could Jacobs, could what Jacobs saw on the film have been produced by one of our competitor nation states here on Earth, like the Soviet Union? And sixth and finally, could Jacobs have really caught an extraterrestrial craft on film? And if so, what are the implications of what he saw it do? So what can we say about the Big Sur UFO incident from the reason perspective? Could Jacobs just be lying so that the whole thing's a hoax? This is always a possibility that we need to consider. When the story came to public attention, it was basically a the word of just one guy, Robert Jacobs, saying that he had been shown a film with a UFO on it. But there are lots of stories of people who say they've been shown films or still images that contain proof of extraterrestrial life, and these stories are very, very frequently hoaxes, especially if you can't look at the original imagery to assess whether or not it's been faked, which you can't do in this case because Jacobs was not given the film. It remained with Major Mansman. So it can be very easy to look at Jacobs and say that he's just one more liar in a string of liars telling tall tales about secret government UFO footage. How did the story first come to public attention? Jacob says he shared part of the story in a 1973 local late night radio talk show program that he hosted in California. But as far as I'm aware, there aren't any recordings of that disclosure. And in any event, it would have only had a small reach. When the story really came to the public's attention was in 1982, 18 years after the event, when Jacobs published an account of his story in the National Enquirer tabloid newspaper. The National Enquirer doesn't have the best reputation as a journalistic source. No, its reputation has varied over the years, and it has broken some genuine stories that the mainstream media didn't want to cover. 
But especially in the 1970s and 1980s, it published a lot of wild stuff that only had the most tenuous connection to reality. And that included material about UFOs. So the fact that Jacobs told his story in The Inquirer didn't really help him. And it was used by skeptics to, as a reason to doubt his claims. Why would Jacobs tell his story in The Inquirer? His explanation is that he didn't want to, that he submitted his story around to various academic and mainstream publications for a year, but all of them turned him down and weren't interested in publishing UFO stories. So the National Enquirer was the only place he could find that was willing to publish it, and he wasn't particularly happy with the result. He said that the Enquirer staff rewrote his story in their own sensationalistic style which wouldn't help the credibility of the story either. Now that the story was public, researchers could start checking up on it. What did they find? They began by trying to confirm the parts of the story that could be confirmed, like whether Jacobs had been a lieutenant in the Air Force who was assigned to Vandenberg Air Force Base in 1964, whether there was a camera station in Big Sur to film missile launches, and whether anything had gone wrong with one of the flights in September of 1964. So they contacted the Air Force, and here is what the Air Force reportedly said. Robert Jacobs has never been in the Air Force. He has not been in the 1369th Photographic Squadron at Vandenberg Air Force Base. He has nothing to do with the Image Orthicon Telescope. He had nothing to do with establishing a tracking site at Big Sur. There is no tracking site at Big Sur. There were no Atlas F or Atlas D launches from Vandenberg during the period in question, and there were no malfunctions of any missiles during that period. Wow, that would blow Jacob's story out of the water. Mystery solved. He'd lack all credibility if he wasn't in the Air Force, never served at Vandenberg, there was no tracking site at Big Sur, and there were no missile malfunctions. Well, that's correct. Uh, what the Air Force said would completely demolish his story and indicate he's a hoaxer. Except, what the Air Force initially told investigators was mistaken. And I'm not sure why, possibly because of typical bureaucratic incompetence or possibly for some more sinister reason, but we have photos of Jacobs and his colleagues at Vandenberg at the time. Jacobs named people like Kingston George and Florence Mansman who knew him, and the Air Force eventually walked back each one of the things they had initially told researchers. Jacobs had been in the Air Force. He had been at the 1369 at Vandenberg. He did work with the Image Orthicon or BU Telescope. He did find the location for it at Big Sur, for which he did receive the missile badge as an award. There were Atlas F and Atlas Ds being tested in the relevant time frame, and there was a malfunction in one of the launches. As Jacobs sought to show by citing a report written by Kingston George, in which George said, One powered flight anomaly was observed, and the coverage of the flights has produced enough data to show that Big Sur photography could be an important adjunct to our other instrumentation. So King George had reportedly said that there was an anomaly or malfunction during powered flight, meaning when the rocket's engine was turned on. So Jacobs wasn't hoaxing, at least about the basic facts about his career and where he was stationed in 1964. But that doesn't mean that the story he told is true or 
if something like it did happen, that he interpreted it correctly. What did researchers find when they contacted people Jacobs mentioned, like Kingston George? In 1993, King George actually wrote an article for the Skeptical Inquirer, which is a publication of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, or PSYCOP. Though today they call themselves the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, or CSI. They seem to have a thing for cop-sounding acronyms for their organization. But basically, they're a skeptical society that regularly seeks to debunk claims of the unusual, and that includes UFOs. So their magazine, The Skeptical Inquirer, regularly debunks UFO accounts. And as far as I've seen, it never publishes articles that would support the idea of anything exotic happening with UFOs. King George's article was titled The Big Sur UFO, An Identified Flying Object. So George thought that what Jacobs reports has a purely natural explanation. But he does confirm that something happened, writing, I was the project engineer for the telescope experiment, and Lieutenant Bob Jacobs was one of the key field team members who, it later developed, was technically not authorized to view the pictures we were collecting. Bob was named the on-site commander by the 1369th Photo Squadron and managed the logistics of the operation at the Big Sur location. Years later, for reasons I can't fathom, Bob claims we witnessed an intelligent UFO in action around an Atlas warhead, followed by an Air Force cover-up. He provides details of his weird claims in an article for the MUFON UFO Journal. What we saw was indeed unique and startling, but it definitely does not require invoking UFOs with purposeful goals and advanced weapons. So George is going to give us a purely normal explanation. He says that the event occurred on September 22nd, 1964, and here's what he says happened. Just after sundown and just before sunrise, there is a period of time when objects at high altitude overhead are sunlit to an observer who's in darkness on the Earth's surface. About 15 to 20 minutes before dawn, when the sky is quite dark, conditions are poised for optimizing the contrast and range of detection for objects hundreds of miles distant. Such was the case during an Atlas launch nicknamed Buzzing Bee before sunup on September 22, 1964. On the TV screen, we watched the Atlas climb into the sunlight and shed its booster engine section about two minutes after launch. The sustainer engine shut down some two and a half minutes after that, all normal for the Atlas, and we could still see the missile tankage against the dark starry sky. And then, astonishingly, we saw a momentary puff of an exhaust plume bright enough to bloom on the television monitor. And an object separated from the tank, the re-entry vehicle, was released to follow its own trajectory to the target area. This was followed by two smaller puffs that also bloomed on the monitor. And then two groups of three objects became distinct from the sustainer tank and the RV. We watched all the objects slowly grow in separation from one another for another minute and a half. Then the objects grew so dim and the tracking so erratic that the operation was halted. We had watched the flight for about eight minutes. The Atlas was supposed to release decoys, simulated RVs, to confuse and overload a missile defense system. The timing of the puffs we had seen was in the right ballpark. Beyond that, we needed expert assistance to help explain the images. We carried a canister containing 1,000 feet of 35-millimeter black-and-white film. At that time, video was recorded by a synchronized film camera 
viewing a kinescope, to Vandenberg Air Force Base, processed it, and began showing it with some excitement to the Atlas missile development people. The reaction was startling. Soon after the first showing to the director of operations, all the top brass at Vandenberg had seen it, and a copy was being made to fly to HQ Strategic Air Command at Omaha. The classification was quickly changed from secret to top secret. Buzzing B had opened an entirely new chapter in ICBM tactical thinking. And there was a specific reason for this, because the launch had demonstrated a problem with the U.S. weapon system, which George discusses in his overall assessment of the event. What had we really photographed? Both the U.S. and the USSR had ongoing research programs in the 1960s for defense against ballistic missiles and to develop options to outwit possible defenses. Omitting the technical details, what had happened on Buzzing B was that two decoys were fired off by small rocket charges on schedule. So according to George, there was no object that entered the frame and flew around the parts of the missile that they were tracking, nor did the non-existent object fire any beams at the nose cone. Instead, the missile fired off two dummy warheads as decoys. This is a way of trying to overload your enemy's anti-missile defenses. If you shoot a missile at him and it releases a bunch of apparent warheads, one of which is real but most of which are not, then your enemy won't know which ones to shoot down with his missile defense and the real warhead is more likely to make its way to its target. But this buzzing bee test revealed a problem. Some of the decoy packing material also trailed along and could be seen optically and also by certain kinds of radar. A little cloud of debris around each decoy warhead clearly gave away the false status, almost as well as coloring the decoys bright red. This, of course, led to more than a little consternation at SAC headquarters and in higher military circles. Although correctable by redesign, The alarm in the minds of the strategic analysts was that the Soviets could defeat our ICBM decoys by using a few telescopes on mountain peaks in the USSR and relaying information on which objects were decoys to the Soviet ICBM Defense Command Center. An immediate concern was that, although few understood its significance, a raft of people at Vandenberg Air Force Base had seen the data. Vulnerability of a major weapon system is normally classified top secret. How could this matter be kept from leaking out? And it was this concern, George says, that led to the cover-up Jacobs reported, and the orders not to discuss it with anyone. As might be expected, the military reaction came swiftly. Everyone who was at the telescope site or had seen the film had to be identified. All, including Jacobs and myself, had to be questioned on what they had seen and what they thought it meant. Each was cautioned not to mention what was on the film to anyone, and not to discuss it with others, even fellow workers who had originally seen it at the same time. None of us had more than a guess at the meaning, and the civilian intelligence experts who did the debriefing gave no hints. Weeks later, my clearance level was increased to allow me to see the films again and analyze them. I don't think Bob Jacobs ever gained the required clearance. The people later assigned to operate the equipment and carry the films around were subsequently cleared to the required level. And according to George, there is a perfectly straightforward reason why we can't just go back and check the film today. The top-secret film was marked for downgrading and declassification after 12 years, but its utility was over after a few months. 
Top secret storage is too difficult and expensive for keeping items of dubious worth, and the film and related materials were all destroyed long before the 12 years were up. Only a few of us even remember the incident today, and Bob Jacobs as being both safe and cagey in observing that the Air Force denies the existence of the film or other hard evidence. So that's why we can't just go back and check the film today, because it would have been routinely destroyed sometime before 1976. George also criticizes several particular aspects of Jacobs' account. He says that contrary to Jacobs, the Atlas warhead did not tumble out of orbit because it was never in orbit, it was on a suborbital flight, and that it did reach its target. He points out that laser beams and other directed energy weapons are not visible when passing through the vacuum of space, so you couldn't have seen bolts of light being fired by a UFO if there had been one. And he says that the missile was so distant that even if a UFO had been close to it, it would not have been possible to see it as more than a point of light on the film. So anything Jacobs actually saw was a reflection of sunlight off the warhead. What do you make of George's criticisms? Well, just like when the uh, Air Force denied everything and then it had to walk that back and we got a twist in the story, I think we got another twist in the story here. Because there are problems with what King George said. First, Jacobs did not say that the missile was in orbit around the Earth. He acknowledges that it was on a suborbital trajectory. What Jacobs said was that the UFO orbited the warhead not that the missile or its components were orbiting the Earth. Second, Jacobs never said that the UFO fired lasers at the warhead. He said he was told to use a cover story involving laser tracking, but he didn't say what kind of beams were fired at the warhead on the film. And while it's true that lasers and beams of many directed energy weapons may not be visible, the first thing that occurred to me is that the beams could have been visible if they were made of plasma. A plasma is one of the states of matter, like solid, liquid, and gas. A plasma occurs when you have a gas with a bunch of electrically charged particles in it, whose motion is governed in, governed in part by electrical and magnetic fields. And plasmas commonly glow in visible light. Fire is a plasma, and fire obviously glows. Lightning is a plasma and lightning glows, and neon lights include plasma and they glow. So it's perfectly possible that the beams Jacob says the UFO projected could have been a plasma weapon, in which case they could be visible even if they had been in space. Third, when it comes to the image resolution, George has been rebutted. A researcher named Robert Hastings took the lead in checking this out. He worked with a former Minuteman missile launch officer named Bob Salas to check the published Atlas launch data and figured out how far downrange the missile would have been at the time. Mark Rodiger of the Center for UFO Studies then used standard optical formulas to calculate what the BU telescope was capable of resolving at that distance. I won't walk you through everything he says, but here's the key part. Next, we must determine the effective size in arc seconds of the missile or UFO at the distance they were filmed. Based on Robert Salas's calculations, we can use an approximate distance of 600 nautical miles. 
it turns out that altering this by a factor of 20% or so won't make an appreciable difference in the result. I won't trouble with listing the formula for angular diameter angular size, but simply present the result for an object 10 meters in size, the estimated diameter of the UFO. At 600 nautical miles, an object 10 meters in size subtends about 1.86 arc seconds. This is much larger than the resolution limit of 0.23 arc seconds of the 24-inch telescope being used to capture images of the launch. What this means in plain English is that, under good conditions, the system used at Big Sur should have easily been able to see an object 10 meters in size as a separate object. The general shape of the object should also have been discernible. And even though he downplayed the resolution of the telescope in his 1993 article, Kingston George had previously written back in 1964 that the goal of the filming was to record minute events following propellant depletion at distances of from 300 to 800 nautical miles. So by George's 1964 admission, the telescope was capable of resolving minute events following propellant depletion at the distance the rocket components were downrange, though by 1993, almost 30 years later, his memory on this point seems to have become fuzzy. But there's an even bigger problem with George's account. Everything he says about the September 22nd, 1964 launch is true. It was not shot down by a UFO. It did reach its target, and it apparently did cause concerns in the Defense Department that the Soviets could easily see through the kind of defenses that we were developing. And so they apparently did track down everyone who saw the film and swore them to secrecy. But the problem is that George seems to be talking about the wrong launch. In an article in the International UFO Reporter titled A Shot Across the Bow, researcher Robert Hastings explains, In his article in the MUFON UFO Journal, Jacobs had written that, although he could not pinpoint the exact date of the launch, information in his personal log indicated that the likely date was September 2nd, 3rd, or 15th, 1964. Once George wrote his skeptical article declaring that the launch had actually occurred on September 22nd, Jacobs quickly responded by saying that his log suggested that he was not even present at the Big Sur telescope site on that date. So Jacobs' log suggested that he wasn't even present for the September 22nd launch that George talks about. Instead, his log indicated that the launch in question likely ha happened on September 2nd, 3rd, or 15th. Hastings continues, Furthermore, Jacobs had also candidly acknowledged that he could not remember the exact model of Atlas ICBM used to launch the enemy radar-defeating experiment and dummy warhead. While he thought that it had been an Atlas F, he admitted that it might have been an Atlas D. In an effort to establish the actual launch date and the type of missile involved, I wrote to Mark Wade at Encyclopedia Astronautica and asked that he provide me with records relating to all Atlas launches at Vandenberg Air Force Base during September 1964. Wade replied that while there was no record of an Atlas F being launched that month, there were two launches attributed to Atlas Ds. The two occasions on which an Atlas D was launched were September 15th and September 22nd, but we can rule out September 22nd if Jacobs wasn't present for that launch, which would leave us 
with September 15th, which is one of the dates for the event suggested by Jacob's Journal. It thus would appear that Kingston George is remembering real events that actually did happen following September 22nd, but he's confused them with events that took place a week earlier on and after September 15th, which is the launch suggested by combining Jacob's logs with the published records of Atlas D launches in that month. So now we have basically a he said, he said situation with Jacobs and George disagreeing about what happened in September 1964 and apparently talking about different launches. Is there any way to resolve this deadlock? Here comes our third twist. There is, and it involves the third figure we mentioned earlier, Major Florence Mansman. He's a pivotal figure because he's the only named person that Jacob says saw the film. According to him, the film was shown in a private meeting with Jacobs, Mansman, and two civilians. Kingston George wasn't there and didn't see it, which would be another sign that Jacobs and George were talking about different launches since George did see the September 22nd footage. That's assuming that Jacobs is telling the truth about this meeting. So the obvious thing to do would be to check with Major Mansman and see what he has to say. Has anybody done that? They have. After Jacobs went public in the National Enquirer, Eric Mishara, a writer for Omni magazine, contacted Major Mansman. And the January 1985 issue of Omni carried an article in which Mishara reported. Now, Robert Jacobs, a one-time first lieutenant who allegedly used a telescope to film the missile's flight, says he can't hide the truth any longer. And Jacobs' commanding officer at Vandenberg's photographic unit Retired Major Florence J. Mansman has confirmed his story. Unfortunately, the piece is so short that it doesn't contain any direct quotations from Major Mansman, but subsequently many more statements from him came to light. In his book, UFOs and Nukes, Robert Hastings writes, I first interviewed Jacobs by telephone in 1986. Afterward, I was provided copies of personal correspondence between himself and Mansman which referenced the Big Sur event. Additionally, researcher Lee Graham provided me with copies of letters Mansman had written to him, as well as to another individual, Peter Bonds, on the same subject. In those letters, Jacobs and Mansman were obviously still stunned by and marveling over the Big Sur UFO incident some 20 years later. It is important to note that this correspondence was never intended for publication or to support the validity of the case. Rather, it contains the private musings of two former U.S. Air Force officers involved in knowledgeable insiders who had experienced what was obviously a life-changing event for each of them. In one letter to Graham, dated January 30, 1983, Mansman lamented the fact that Jacobs had gone public with the case. He wrote, I do have some deep concerns about information so vital to the future of mankind falling into the wrong hands. He then alluded to the Soviet's theft of A-bomb secrets during World War II. Nevertheless, said Mansman, because the cat was out of the bag, he had decided to confirm Jacob's account of the incident to various individuals who had written to him. Mansman echoed this sentiment in a letter to Peter Bonds dated March 8, 1983. Dr. Bob opened a Pandora's box, and in the last few months, I have been bombarded with phone calls and letters. I tried to answer the sincere ones. Mansman then discussed the image of the UFO captured on film. Details would be sketchy and from memory. The shape was a classic disc, 
the center seemed to be a raised bubble. The entire lower saucer shape was glowing and seemed to be rotating slowly. At the point of beam release, if it was a beam, it, the object, turned like an object required to be in a position to fire from a platform. But again, this could be my own assumption from being in aerial combat. Mansman's evaluation of the UFO's origin was explicit. The assumption was, at that time, extraterrestrial. So Mansman confirmed the core of Jacob's story. The film did capture the image of a UFO. It was a classic flying saucer shape with a dome on the top. It did fire what looked like beams at the dummy warhead. And at the time, in 1964, those who were familiar with the film interpreted the UFO as being of extraterrestrial origin. In 1986, MUFON researcher T. Scott Crane also wrote Major Mansman, and in 1987, he received a letter back that stated, The events you are familiar with had to have happened as stated by both Bob Jacobs and myself because the statement made from each of us after 17 years matched. What was on the film was seen only twice by Bob Jacobs, once in film quality control and once in my office at the CI-attended showing. The articles in the Inquirer and Omni on my part and the statements made by both Dr. Jacobs and myself were factual. So here, Mansman indicates that the civilians who were pr present at the meeting were from the CIA. Mansman also indicates that this, in the same letter that at least in 1987, he didn't know the names of the CIA employees, though he may have known them back in 1964. I saw it four times. Once in my own quality control review and editing for the general and his staff. Once in review with the chief scientist and his assistant. Once for the commanding general with only one of his staff. And the fourth time with the chief scientist, his assistant, the three government men, and Bob Jacobs. Here, Mansman indicates that there were three civilians present. That, that differs from Jacobs' memory because he said there were only two. But Mansman also on other occasions has said there were two, so precisely how many civilians were present is unclear, but it would appear to be two or three. I ordered Lieutenant Jacobs not to discuss what he saw with anyone because of the nature of the launch, the failure of the launch mission, and the probability that the optical instrumentation, the film, showed an interference with normal launch patterns. I was ordered not to discuss any of what was seen or discussed during the screenings. I only passed my order as the ranking optical instrumentation officer onto Lieutenant Jacobs. There was no one else involved. So Mansman himself had been ordered to keep quiet about this by his superiors, and he passed that order on to Jacobs as well. At various points over the years, Major Mansman also clarified what happened to the film. This is something that Bob Jacobs didn't originally know because he left Major Mansman's office after he was ordered not to speak about the incident. But Mansman later told Jacobs and others what happened next. And here is Jacobs himself summarizing what Mansman told him. He said what happened is this. They took the film and they spooled off the part that had the UFO on it and they took a pair of scissors and cut it off. They put that on a separate reel. They put it in their briefcase. They handed Major Mansman back the rest of the film and said, here, I don't need to remind you, Major Mansman, of the, of the uh, severity of a security breach. We'll consider this uh, incident closed. And they walked off with the film. Major Mansman never saw it again. And as far as I'm concerned, nobody else ever saw it again. Certainly not at Vandenberg. I'm certain that it left Vandenberg and went somewhere else. 
So the civilians, whether they were from the CIA or somewhere else, reportedly cut the film and took just the part of it that had captured the UFO. In his 1987 letter to T. Scott Crane, the major clarified the circumstances under which he released this portion of the film, stating, No film was ever released from our archives without a signature. I even signed out film when we had launch showings to VIPs in the general's office on short notice. However, I released the film to the chief scientist over his signature, then they departed. Mansman had mentioned that the chief scientist, who was his boss, was in attendance at this meeting. So apparently he gave the film to the chief scientist, who then signed for it, and then I guess it was given to the civilians who left with it. Now, Mansman continued to support the factuality of Jacob's account for years before his death in 2000. For example, in 1995, the Sci-Fi Channel show Sightings, which focused on the paranormal, was planning to do a segment in which they would interview both Bob Jacobs and Robert Hastings. And as part of their show prep, they also contacted Major Mansman in retirement, and he wrote back to say, Dear Mr. Collier, Responding to your FedEx letter of November 14, 1995, regarding the validity of the January 1989 MUFON UFO Journal story by Dr. Robert Jacobs, it is all true as presented. And yes, I have also responded to other researchers in the past, but only after Dr. Jacobs released the details of these sightings, negating my secrecy bond. The image orthicon camera system we used in capturing the unidentified flying object on film had the capacity to photograph the nuts and bolts of the missile launch and its supersonic flight. In retrospect, I now regret not being able to evaluate the film for more than three showings. The only people in attendance of the viewing were the director of the Office of the Chief Scientist and his assistant, two government agents, Lieutenant Jacobs and myself. The two government agents confiscated the film and placed it in a briefcase and departed after I had checked their authorization to leave with the film. I was instructed later by the Office of the Chief Scientist, the Judge Advocate General's Office, and my commanding officer to consider the incident top secret. I am writing to confirm Dr. Jacob's account. So Mansman consistently confirmed the factuality of Jacob's story to multiple individuals over multiple years until his death. That still doesn't rule out the possibility that they misinterpreted what they saw in the film. How qualified were Jacobs and Mansman as photographic interpreters? Jacobs was the officer in charge of photo-optical instrumentation for the 13th 69th Photographic Squadron, so he was very experienced looking at photos in a military context. However, he only got to see the film once in Major Mansman's office, and he didn't get to do a careful study of it. However, Major Mansman got to view the film repeatedly. He used a magnifying glass to examine the images closely, and he also was an experienced interpreter of military photos. In his 1995 letter, he told sightings producer Kurt Collier, By the time of this missile launch, I was a trained officer in aerial observation and a combat radar navigator in World War II, a director of operations for the Ground Observer Corps during the Korean and Cold War conflicts, a trained aerial reconnaissance officer, and photo interpreter for clandestine operations for three years during the Berlin airlifts. So Mansman was no slouch at photo interpretation. He had been a photo interpreter for clandestine operations, 
And I think we have to take it seriously if he says that he saw the footage that revealed a flying saucer-shaped craft intercepting and shooting down a warhead traveling 11,000 miles an hour. Let's look at one final theory that would involve this incident not being real. Back in episode 143 on Paul Benowitz and episode 144 on Richard Doty, we learned about lies that Air Force Intelligence told to businessman Paul Benowitz about UFOs and aliens. It was part of a disinformation campaign they were conducting against him. Could this be the same thing? Could both Mansman and Jacobs be lying as part of a disinformation campaign and there was no 1964 Big Sur UFO incident? It's a possibility that has to be considered. All we're dealing with here is the testimony of two men, and they're, they're only as good as their word, and not everybody's word is good. However, I can see problems with the idea that this is just a disinformation campaign. First, if that's what it was, then you'd expect the Air Force to get its ducks in a row and make sure that everyone is on the same page. Uh, for example, you wouldn't expect one of the people who had been at Vandenberg, like Kingston George, to go out and start promoting a counter-narrative that said nothing unusual happened. You'd expect the people involved to be supporting the story. You also wouldn't expect the initial bungles, like the Air Force denying that Robert Jacobs had ever served with them, or saying that he had nothing to do with Big Sur, that there was no tracking station at Big Sur, and that there were no missile malfunctions at the time. So if this were a disinformation campaign, it was poorly planned and executed. Second, Richard Doty was an Air Force intelligence officer from the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and lying is part of your job when you do intelligence work. But based on what we know, Mansman and Jacobs don't seem to have been intelligence officers. They were tech guys who were doing work with photos, so they're not the kind of people you'd automatically suspect of lying. Third, there's the question of motive. When Richard Doty lied to Paul Benowitz, it was because Benowitz had detected a real classified program that was currently being operated out of Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. Only Benowitz misinterpreted what he saw as alien technology, and so Air Force intelligence decided not to undeceive him on that point so that he wouldn't learn the truth about what he had stumbled into. So what would have been the motive for the Air Force to lie in this case? I can imagine the military lying about alien stuff in order to project an atmosphere of invincibility to competitor nations. Hey, we've reverse engineered UFOs, so you don't want to mess with us. But that doesn't fit this circumstance because we didn't get any, we didn't get our hands on any alien tech. In fact, Alien Tech reportedly shot down one of our missiles, and spreading that story would make us look vulnerable rather than invulnerable. Can you think of anything that could be a possible motive for disinformation in this case? I can think of a couple of possibilities. One of them concerns an announcement that President Reagan made in March of 1983. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept 
and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies. I know this is a formidable technical task, one that may not be accomplished before the end of this century. Yet current technology has attained a level of sophistication where it's reasonable for us to begin this effort. What Reagan was proposing was officially named the Strategic Defense Initiative, though its critics nicknamed it the Star Wars program. The basic idea was that instead of being content with the dangerous and unstable situation of mutually assured destruction, whereby the U.S. and USSR both had enough nukes to wipe the other out in the event of a nuclear war, we'd build a defensive network that would serve as a shield against nuclear weapons so that if the Soviets launched ICBMs at us, either satellites or ground-based defense systems, including lasers and particle beam weapons, could shoot them down while they were still in flight and thus protect us. Well, the reported Big Sur event involved something like that, an apparent UFO shooting down a U.S. missile. So that raises a question in my mind of whether the reports about Big Sur about the Big Sur incident could be part of a disinformation campaign somehow connected to Reagan's strategic defense initiative. What do you think of that possibility? Although I recognize that there's a similarity in that both involve shooting down missiles, it's hard for me to see how the Big Sur incident would serve to help as part of a disinformation campaign. It's not like they needed to convince the Soviets that shooting down ICBMs was possible. The Soviets were already extremely concerned that it was possible. Um, They were terrified that the U.S. would get the Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, working, and then suddenly their arsenal against us would be useless. And the U.S. could then act in an aggressive, warlike manner without the Soviets being capable of doing anything to deter us. Now, Reagan insisted that this was not the goal of SDI, that it was purely peaceful. Uh, If memory serves, Reagan even offered to share the technology with the Soviets so they could protect themselves against our arsenal. He wanted to build a system that would genuinely ensure world peace and, and protect the Soviets too. But the Soviets weren't buying it, and they took SDI as an effort on the part of the U.S. to permanently get the the upper hand over them. So they didn't need any convincing that this was a real possibility that it might work. They were terrified that it would. And a story about a 1964 UFO nuke shootdown wouldn't really help that situation. So I don't see it as being a good basis for disinformation. Then. There's the fact that Jacobs published his story in the National Enquirer in 1982, the year before President Reagan announced SDI. So it wasn't yet U.S. policy to pursue something like this when the Big Sur story came out. That of itself suggests the two events are unrelated. And if it was an early deception meant to lay the groundwork for SDI, then they had a lot of time to plan it, and you would expect it to have gone off better than it did, without things like Kingsman George spinning counter-narratives and the Air Force denying facts about Robert Jacobs and the Big Sur program. So I don't see it as a good basis. I, I don't see a good basis for thinking this is just disinformation. I can't rule out that possibility entirely, but I don't see a good basis for it. And I think we have to consider 
the possibility that Mansman and Jacobs saw exactly what they said they saw in the film. Then let's explore that theory. Mansman and Jacobs and a few others saw something shoot down a dummy warhead during a missile test. Could this just have been a classified U.S. program that they mistook for aliens? Or could it have been done by a competitor nation like the Soviets or the Chinese? These possibilities are very difficult to sustain for something that happened in 1964. In the first place, the U.S. was ahead of both the Soviet Union and China in this area. Back in episode 213, part two of our look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, we learned that the U.S. had way more intercontinental ballistic missiles or ICBMs than the Soviet Union did. In 1962, we reportedly had around 5,000 strategic nuclear warheads, while the Soviets only had about 300. So we had 17 times as many nukes as they did. Worse for the Soviets, they reported only having 20, they reportedly, this is post-1960s research, but they reportedly only had 20 missiles capable of flying across the globe and hitting the U.S. That's one of the key reasons Premier Khrushchev was anxious to get nuclear missiles into Cuba so that he would have enough ways of hitting the U.S. to serve as a credible deterrent because he had only a handful of ICBMs capable of reaching the United States. So America had way more hardware of this sort than our competitors and much more experience with that hardware, meaning our competitors would not have been in a position to shoot down a warhead the way the UFO did. Also, not at that speed. And it would have been rock stupid of them to do so, even if they had the ability. At a minimum, it would give away the fact that they had this technology and set the U.S. on the course of trying to find a way to counter it. And at worst, it could start a nuclear war if you're using your tech to interfere with American nuclear tests. So I don't think that someone like Russia or China could be responsible. What about us? Could this have been a classified American program that happened to get caught on film? At the time of the incident, the warhead was 200 nautical miles in the air and moving at between 11,000 and 14,000 miles per hour. We didn't have anything in 1964 that could intercept a warhead that high, moving that fast, fly around it, and knock it out of the sky. If we did, we'd already be well on our way to having Star Wars, and President Reagan wouldn't have said that it would take decades and might not even be completed by the year 2000. So I don't think it's credible to say that we had something capable of doing what the UFO reportedly did in 1964. Those kinds of flight and weapons capabilities were just beyond our reach at the time. In which case, we need to consider an exotic explanation, like the UFO being a genuine alien craft. What would it mean if that were the case? Why would the aliens have done this to our missile? Well, we've got evidence that whatever is behind UFOs or UAPs, as they're called today, is interested in our military. There are numerous reports of UFOs appearing at the scenes of military facilities and maneuvers, like the famous Tic Tac incident that happened off the coast of San Diego back in 2004, and numerous similar incidents. In particular, UFOs are reported to show a notable interest in our nuclear weapons. 
they started showing up in a dramatic way in 1947, just two years after the detonation of the first nuclear bombs in 1945, and there are numerous reports of them monitoring or even interfering with nuclear facilities and technology. That's the overall subject of Robert Hastings' book, UFOs and Nukes. But when it comes to why they would want to shoot down a practice warhead like this, it can be read in different ways. Bob Jacobs thought that they were signaling their disapproval of us having nuclear weapons, warning us against going down the nuclear path because of the destruction it could lead to. And that would be a friendly message, just a nice friendly warning. However, I can also see a less friendly interpretation. Intelligence is a trait that tends to be born out of conflict so that you can outthink your opponents. That's why carnivores are smarter than herbivores, because it doesn't take brain power to sneak up on a blade of grass, but you need brains to sneak up on prey. As a result, I think intelligent life forms are likely to have histories that involve aggression and warfare, just like ours. If this account is accurate, well, then they have plasma weapons on their ship, because that's what they seem to use to bring down the warhead. So I could imagine that the shootdown was meant to send a different message. Don't mess with us. Your missiles won't help you. We'll kick your butts in battle. Allow us to demonstrate. Which is less friendly than the foolish humans, give up your nukes and join us in peaceful brotherhood interpretation. So what can we say about the Big Sur UFO incident from the faith perspective? Not a lot. Uh, if it's true that this was an extraterrestrial craft, then intelligent alien life would exist. And we talked about the faith implications of intelligent aliens back in episode 55. So you can go back and listen to that. But basically, the idea that there are intelligent aliens doesn't contradict anything in the Christian faith. If they exist, they would just be more of God's creatures, just like the other creatures of God we have here on Earth. And they might or might not be just as dangerous as we humans are. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Big Sur UFO incident? I think that the Big Sur UFO incident is a fascinating story. Uh, I can't be certain about it because it's ultimately based on the testimony of just two men, Major Mansman and Dr. Bob Jacobs. But the parts of their story that can be checked out do check out. They are who they say they are, and they served the roles they claim to have served at Vandenberg Air Force Base in 1964. They confirm each other's stories, and neither of them seems to have a motive to lie. So this doesn't smell like disinformation. If they saw what they said they saw, then I don't think it can be explained as classified Soviet, Chinese, or American technology from 1964 which would point us in the direction of an exotic explanation like a genuine extraterrestrial craft. So if the story Mansman and Jacobs relate is accurate, that would seem to be the logical explanation. But what it means and what message the UFO was sending is ambiguous. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the viewers and listeners? We'll have links to Robert Hastings' book, UFOs and Nukes, Extraordinary Encounters at Nuclear Weapons Sites. Edwin Ruppelt's book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, Bob Jacobs's article, Deliberate Deception, The Big Sur UFO Filming, Kingston George's article, The Big Sur UFO, An Identified Flying Object, 
uh, Robert Hastings' article, A Shot Across the Bow, and NICAP's resources on the Big Sur incident. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what your theories are about the Big Sur UFO shootdown. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work in this episode. You can hire them yourself for your video and animation needs, and you can check out their work by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you engage with the video uh, by liking, commenting, and subscribing. So, you know, if you engage with it, it tells YouTube that you found it engaging and Other people might find it engaging, too. So YouTube will show it to more people and you can help the channel grow that way. In particular, I am trying to grow my channel. And so I'd appreciate it if you uh, subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or something else. And these days I have multiple videos coming out each week. So, uh, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week is Thanksgiving here in the United States, so we're going to be doing an episode of Thanksgiving Weird Questions. We're going to talk about subjects like, did Jesus know how to build an airplane? Uh, What happened with Balaam's donkey? Was the demon Asmodeus possessing Sarah in the book of Tobit? Do our sins increase or decrease Jesus' sufferings on the cross? We're also going to talk about Ed and Lorraine Warren and more. Excellent. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 285. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by The Grady Group, a Catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the United States, using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients. Learn more at GradyGroupInc.com. And by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. Customs Matters throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com. And by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, PlayStation Portable. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash PSP.